have a weapon more powerful than the British Empire. And that weapon is our refusal to bow to any order but our own, any institution but our own. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Let Them Eat Cake. I am Jack, and my co-hosts are Ace and John. Uh, what's today's show about? Today we're doing a show on the Balkans. Um, we're joined by Tom Lord of Militant Wire. It's going to be our second collab with them in a series of collabs that we've been doing. Um, we get into everything from the breakdown of Yugoslavia up into the Kosovo conflict, even talking today about how the current conflict is starting to erupt over license plates. But if you really get to the end there, um, Ace actually uh, covered some of it on the ground um, personally back in the day. So him and Tom have a pretty interesting conversation at the end of that show. Maybe Ace, you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was there in 2018. And at around the time I was there, there was this referendum going on in what is now called North Macedonia. Back then it used to be called the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. And essentially this law that had passed was to appease to Greece in, um, or at least that's how many of the people in the country viewed it, was to appease to Greece in their the, the naming dispute between the two countries. And a lot of people did not like it. There was as trivial as it may sound to kind of like the Western perspective to an English speaking audience. But um, this had come after years of sanctions and rowing and blocking Macedonia's entrance to the EU, affecting the lives of many young people and in a lot of sense, their pride. So a lot of people decided to go out on the streets in the capital Skopje where I was. And there was there was rioting for a couple of days. Police showed up in armored vehicles. And I think it kind of just like epitomized Balkan conflict in a lot of ways. It kind of reminds me about nato right now and how turkey is like basically fucking over people just to like you know people have to appease turkey to get into nato right now and uh speaking of turkey i want to get in a little bit for our first topic today is talking about infrastructure erdogan deliberately gave money to bad contractors and you know you can see these interviews where they're talking to good contractors and they're like why didn't your building fall over and they're like oh because we actually built it correctly so at the same time in Syria, we obviously have Assad embezzling the money and, and shelling people. Um, and then also there was an arms transfer from Iran going into the Iraq and Syrian border. It was bombed. I think six cars in the convoy were bombed. They were undercover smuggling weapons into probably Lebanon or Syria um, under, you know, let's, you know, how Iran works. And probably bombed by Israel because it's that's where they normally bomb them is right in that border region where it's kind of lawless. And also um, with this rail disaster, as it's a serious thing looking at infrastructure here, um, I think it's ridiculous. You look at J.D. Vance on the TV, he's raking the bottom of a river with a stick, acting like somebody should fix this while he's the elected official who should be fixing it interesting that you you bring this up because uh all the for example just to go back to turkey we'll go through it one by one real quick uh there you can you can see that for lack of a better term they're covering their asses and they've arrested all these contractors and you know given the way turkey's run and erdogan's known connections to for example the turkish mafia more or less a lot of these arrests kind of seem like hollow because of just (laughs) <laughs> their their direct connections to the government. A lot of these contractors were building these shitty apartments that couldn't really withstand the earthquake. 
And then you go to Syria and you look at Assad and it, it's kind of interesting how he's able to embezzle money from from the country and like from these aid groups all the while still being able to blame sanctions in his propaganda for the reason Syria is suffering. And it's kind of a convenient scapegoat for him because Correct me if I'm wrong, John, but if I'm not mistaken, aid has been going in and out of Syria regardless of whatever whatever sanctions have been placed on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way the way I see it is, it's, there was it's, also uh, a protest today in New York City uh, against Assad and embezzlement of aid. Yeah, and it, it's 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 a it's an interesting way to kind of like sway the support of Westerners who may not know any better. They're like, well, Syria is suffering because of the sanctions, and it's like. Eh, Whatever you think about sanctions, this is this is not an issue of sanctions. It actually presents like a pretty interesting opportunity for Assad to, for you know, quote unquote, punish some of the more rebellious territories of northern Syria that were hit. So uh, while we're talking about dictators, um, Jack, you have some thoughts about uh, Vladimir Putin and Ukraine and some of the stuff that's been developing there today. Zelensky told him to fuck off. Uh, Kamala Harris just called Putin a war criminal or something. Something she said he committed massacres or war crimes, crimes against humanity. I think she said, which is like no yeah, shit. It would be no shit. Like that, yeah, it's like, like brave statement. Just call it genocide. Yeah, like, such a brave statement, Kamala. Really, really brave. Really, I've been involved with arguing with people who continually talk about America sabotaging uh, peace talks in Ukraine. They blew up the pipeline according to Seymour Hash. Whether they did or not, I honestly couldn't care less. But uh, I also stand on the on the point where you don't make peace with someone who invaded your home. <laughs> so, like, as far as I'm concerned, Zelensky did the right thing. It may prolong the war, but you don't make peace with someone who's invaded your home and threatening you and trying to burn your house down because they think that it's theirs. There are way too many people trying to like galaxy brain the whole Ukraine situation and try and make it about like, well, the U.S. is doing this to prolong the war and, you know, they, they want to sell more weapons. And it's like Zelensky did nothing wrong telling Putin to fuck off. It's like if, if Putin were in a better position in this war, uh, I don't think he would be him or Russian media in general would be uh, would be negotiating peace talks. So there's they would, absolutely they would no probably way. If they, if be, they were winning, yeah. There's exactly yeah. If they if, if they took Kiev, let's say, let's run it back a little bit. If they took Kiev by now, which they didn't, um, there there would be absolutely no talk of peace from that from that side. No. Zero. No, and I also think it's kind of funny the people who harp on about the Second Amendment and self-defense and stand your ground laws are the ones saying that Ukraine should make peace with Putin, even though what Ukraine's doing is self-defense, exactly what they always champion. But for some reason, yeah, exactly. pro-peace with an invading fascist is anti-war somehow. Yeah, what, what it comes down to for me, really, is, uh, yeah, is, is that people, I don't know what it is, what kind of cognitive dissonance we're dealing with here. But people, for whatever reason, like, don't understand that just humans in general, and politicians especially, are opportunists. Like, yes, people are going to hop on an opportunity if they see one, war included. 
And yeah, I, I don't, I don't see like why you should, why you should trust so much that Russia is innocent in this whole thing. It, it's like, you're trying to like, you're, you're trying to like trick yourself. It's very weird. Yeah, why don't we, uh, why don't we finish up the pre-show with talking about, uh, North Korea here? Um, they just tested a missile, um, pretty interesting stuff. And we've also seen a new face coming up and around there. So what's been interesting is uh, leading up to this uh, big missile reveal that we knew it was coming because they were going to have a missile parade. Like before, he disappeared for a while. And so everyone was doing the rumor thing again. So what I actually think was happening is the reason for his absence is he was actually training his daughter to start coming out into public. And that's why he's like was absent for a few months or weeks or however long. I was talking with some friends, generally politically informed people, about how, how they were saying, like, you know, whenever the news reports that North Korea, like, is testing a missile, they could, they could give, like, less of a fuck. But from my understanding is, is when North Korea tests missiles or when, you know, as meaningless as it may seem, which, I mean, to some degree it is, it, it is often a way for them to uh, kind of reintroduce, for, for lack of a better term, like, events. That happened in North Korea, for example, this this time around, Kim Jong-un was spotted with his daughter, which many are now taking to believe that this she might be his his new successor. But if you guys recall beforehand, it was it was like his sister. They when he back when Yeah, I think her name is Kim Yo Jong. Kim Yo Jong or Kim Yo Jang, I think. Yeah, every everybody everybody thought she was uh thought when everybody thought Kim Jong-un was probably I describe her as the Hillary Clinton of North Korea. Right, right, right. When people when people all thought that Kim Jong Un was going to die of die of illness, she kind of came along and she she kind of caught the media's eye for a while. Some memes were made about it, stuff like that. But I, the way the way I just kind of want to like let our viewers know is like when 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 you hear news coming out of North Korea and when you hear the stuff about missile tests, you should you should kind of see it as it's like how how often do we hear about anything happening in North Korea? right never usually it's, it's by missile design tests. yeah <laughs> it's yeah literally never because it's all propaganda every single information that gets out of north korea is propaganda it's almost the same with china and it's not really the same with russia russia's propaganda operates on half truths um it's quite ingenious actually it really penetrates the west um, but yeah, like it, yeah, it's no. pure propaganda and coming out of north korea the only country comparable when it, when to eritrea how often do you even hear about Eritrea? Nobody knows what Eritrea you know what I mean. is. <laughs> All right, let's yeah. let's uh, let's it's... end it there and let's go into this interview. Anyone, if, unless anyone has anything cool. else to say? No, that should be good, man. All right, so let's you know we're gonna go into our interview with Tom Lord from Militant Wire on the Balkans. It's a political literacy interview, and a really really good episode today. My name is Tom Lord. Uh, I am a researcher who works on, uh, who studies and writes about political violence, mostly between the left, the right, post-left, so uh, neo-fascists, um, revolutionary communists, and anarchists of various stripes. Um, and most of my work focuses on Europe. I, in October 2021, I co-founded the outlet Militant Wire, along with two colleagues, Lucas Weber and small arms like weapons analyst War Noir. Um, 
and Mills and Wire is basically a research platform for emerging talent in the field of study of armed conflict and terrorism. In regards to Europe, what country would you say is the most fascist out of all of them? People are competing with, is it Serbia or Hungary, you know, what do you think? Really, that's, that's interesting. Um, uh, well, okay, so let's start this by saying there are no overtly fascist governments in Europe right now. Um, on, there is the authoritarian government of Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus, and then there are degrees of authoritarianism and increasing right-wing nationalism and even ultra-nationalism in the rest of Europe. You bring up Hungary, which is an interesting country because they're a European Union country, uh, and a lot of their conflict, a lot of the conflict between Budapest and Brussels has involved immigration policy, right? Um, and so we all know well about Viktor Orban and his interesting transformation from kind of a student activist to a modern 21st century, 21st century nationalist, anti-globalist, right? Uh, Serbia is interesting. The degree to which, all right, you brought up Serbia's current president, Aleksandar Vucic, um, who has a history that is commingled with nationalist movements in his country that go back to the Yugoslav Wars. Um, he is a politician. Um, in terms of policy in Serbia, I don't think, I think it would be difficult to find an average Serb citizen who would say, yes, we're living in the midst of a, excuse me, an average Serbian citizen, Serb of course referring to the ethnicity, but an average citizen of Serbia of any ethnicity saying that we live in a fascist government, though, I would imagine that progressive citizens of Serbia and those on the left are looking particularly at Serbia's foreign policy, uh, most, most acutely its bilateral policies with neighbors Kosovo, who Serbia does not recognize as an independent country, we'll get into that more, and, and then uh, perhaps more troubling to analysts, uh, Serbia's bilateral relations with Bosnia, in which <clears throat> Aleksandar Vucic is propping up and encouraging the rather dangerous and divisive rhetoric and policies of <clears throat> this Bosnian Serb leader of that country. Bos Bosnia is separated into basically three federal administrative entities based upon ethno-religion. So you have the Serb entity, which is Eastern Orthodox, the Croat entity, which is Catholic, and the Bosniak, which is a Bosnian Muslim, but still ethnically Southern Slav. And so Milorad Dodik, the leader of the Bosnian Serbs, has really been turning up the heat on the separatist rhetoric, kind of understands that militarily ethnic Serbs hold the hammer. Uh, that's debatable, actually, because Croatia is a NATO country. But um, yeah, he's, he's certainly testing the waters, and he's doing so with the permission of Aleksandr Vucic. Back to your question as to what is the most fascist country in Europe right now? That's interesting. I mean, I really, I would like to talk to a left-wing Italian about how they feel about Giorgio Meloni right now, but I'm, I, I'm not sure I can answer that with any confidence. When I get home, I want to talk about Italy a bit more. We'd love to, yeah, and there's where you guys can educate me a little bit. We were talking about backroom deals and stuff there for a second, so there's this whole thing, you see it all the time, 
with tankies where they talk about how like nothing was written down but these promises were made about nato expansion back in the day and the balkans is all wrapped up in there so the breakup of the balkans and the nato expansion i mean let's dive into that a little bit as the three of you know and your audience know yugoslavia was neither a part of the soviet union nor was it a warsaw pact member they they were a part of the non-aligned movement uh along with a great egyptian leader and a few a few other countries uh, who stood somewhere in between the first, second, and third third worlds of the of the Cold War. I would love to see the documentation of this, but I think anyone uh, who has an undergraduate or like a curious AP history student or whatever, around the time of you know 18, 19, 20 years old, you start looking into how it all fell apart and how NATO expansion got to where we're at, um, especially even the pre-2014 Ukraine. So, uh, like, my whole generation was captured by this Noam Chomsky quote. Uh, it's great, and it's how we kind of came to understand NATO. Now, I've, I've reassessed the accuracy of it, but it seems to be pretty damn accurate. And so the idea is that, what, George H.W. Bush and Gorbachev had their Reykjavik meeting, right? Uh, uh, in Iceland, and there was a discussion about, um, and then thereafter, there were ongoing discussions between the U.S. Secretary of State and the Soviet Foreign Minister about, you know, what what the breakup of of the Soviet and Warsaw Pact is going to look like, and what the use, the future of NATO will be. And this is Noam Chomsky's characterization, and, and I, I understand that the man's biases and all that, but I think it's funny and it's probably pretty accurate. He says. Yeah, the Americans, the American Secretary of State basically told the Soviet Foreign Minister, okay, after it all breaks down, uh, NATO will not expand one inch east of Berlin, which is, you know, into, into the former Deutsches Demokratischen Republic, uh, the GDR, East Germany. The phrase was not one inch to the east, meaning NATO would not extend to East Germany and of course would not extend further. And also he thought he had a promise that NATO would become a more political organization. So the pres President Bush and the Secretary of State James Baker did promise that. They promised NATO would become a more political organization. It would not extend one inch to the east. However, Gorbachev made a serious error. And if any of you who are intending to take on a course in diplomacy, you might pay attention to it. He only got a verbal promise. Uh, it was, he thought it was, it was a gentleman's agreement. You don't make gentlemen's agreements with savage, violent powers. So they made sure not to write it down. It was never written in words. It was just a gentleman's agreement. Uh, we have no doubt about what was said. Helmut Kohl said the same thing. Genscher said the same thing. Yeah, we promise not to extend an inch to the east. Well, what happened? Uh, NATO immediately expanded to East Germany, and under Clinton it expanded much farther through East, uh, Eastern Europe, right up to the borders of the Soviet Union. I don't know if it was that cynical or if it actually went down like that, but that is, that's the understanding in the worldview of a lot of folks who, who uh, you characterized as like neo-Stalinists who are looking at the current war in Ukraine. Russia had just like barely evaded a civil war, right? Like, like people forget this in the early 1990s, like after the breakup of the Soviet, like Russia almost went into a civil war. It was rather gnarly. You had folks 
firing tank shells into the goddamn Russian parliament, into the Duma, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Russia was incredibly weak, and NATO absolutely had the upper hand, and the prevailing knowledge, now there might be folks such as Kissinger, whomever, and I know he's a very unpopular man or whatever, but you can't deny that fellow's brilliance when it comes to geostrategy and forecasting, and there might have been some who said, nah, this isn't the end of it, we're going to face other challenges down the road, but like, we were really on the party train of like, unipolar world, right? Like, we really thought that, uh, you know, uh, America would have absolute hegemony, and that we'd be able to dictate terms, that we would continue guaranteeing free trade by patrolling the oceans of the world and uh you know no one was talking about an ascendant uh china or anything like that at the time and and uh boris yeltsin was probably the most uh now a lot of people have said this is the reason is that um he had some lifestyle issues and, and was not a fit leader but he's probably the most compliant and agreeable russian leader the west will see for another I don't know, unless Russia like collapses tomorrow. Like, arguably another 50 years. I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Went down the rabbit hole. Yeah, it's a fine rabbit hole to go down. I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about was Yeltsin. I wanted to transition into Yeltsin and Clinton, so. In the context of the breakup of Yugoslavia, though. Exactly. So, uh, do you mind if I provide a little bit of context? for audience yeah yeah you know it's like we need to put political literacy so mm -hmm. it's got to be enough that people actually understand these events and tankies just can't say these things online mm -hmm. well what was the country that was you know whose whose component parts were largely dominated by the ottoman empire for a great period of its recent history and then very briefly by your common powers. common thing going on for a lot of people there <laughs> yes uh and then various european powers this is the austro-hungarian empire briefly held bosnia and made a very large lasting cultural impact upon it um and then you had World War One, which, you know, everybody says started in Sarajevo uh, when Gavrilo Princip, a, a young Serb nationalist, uh, shot and killed the Archduke of the Habsburg Empire, Franz Ferdinand, on a bridge in Old Town Sarajevo. Um, uh, everybody said, you know, they called it the Balkan powder keg before that. Uh, it's a real nightmare, but there were two Balkan Wars, 1912 and 1913. The 1912 war was pretty much all about former Ottoman empires ganging up against the Ottomans, and then the 1913 war was those former allies weren't so happy with their holdings, namely Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, and they all fought it out with one another, and that was that. Um, and then we had briefly something called the Kingdom of the Slovenes, Serbs, and Croats, or Croats and Serbs. Well, World War II pretty much destroyed that. And then this uh, probably well, easily, without argument, one of the most remarkable leaders of World War II was a man named Josip Broz Tito, partisan uh, communist uh, leader of Yugoslav forces during World War II, and he, he I think that, I think that, hmm, I don't want to say most, uh, a healthy handful, maybe even a majority of people presently, believe that this man, Josip Broz Tito, was the only thing that could hold together this country of people who broadly share a culture, you know, very same cuisine, similar traditions, they've grown up in the same geography, uh, outside of 
the Albanian people who speak Shkip, uh, Yugoslavs speak what's called today BCS, Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian, it's been called Serbo-Croat, there are a few differences, mostly dialect, uh, in terms of dialect between them, but they largely speak the same language, they share, they share a history, but there, it's been such a bloody and fraught history. In the lead up to his death, there were some rather erudite analysts who said, ooh, and, and even just average Yugoslav city, citizens, you know, like the cab driver who'd pick you up in, in Belgrade or, 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 uh, or Sarajevo or whatever, you know, or Zagreb would, would pick you up. And in 1979, I've heard from people who traveled around there at the time, they're like, yeah, Tito's going, we all know his health is in bad shape. And when he goes, this entire thing is going to fall apart. The whole thing is going to collapse. And they weren't wrong. It took, it took 11 years thereafter. He died in May in 1980. There were incidents, and a lot of them were violent. There was increasing nationalism on all sides, on all sides, and this is where it gets really prickly and it becomes a minefield. You try to talk to people about the issue, and they're like, no, it was this side or that side that was becoming more increasingly nationalistic. No, I think that anyone who is intelligent, opportunistic, and politically motivated or ideologically motivated by 1980, 1981, knew that there was going to be a vacuum of authority, that the communist leadership was not going to be able to survive. Uh, at this point in, in the USSR, even though Yugoslavia was not part of the Warsaw Pact or a part of uh, the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia was nonetheless constantly looking at the fate of the USSR, how the grand project of communism was able to keep a society together and provide for its people. And the weather vane was not looking good by 1981, uh, generally for global communism. Um, and so a lot of nationalists uh, and a lot of people who have been like Ketman, you know, there were, there were a lot of folks who, you know, their grandfathers at the, at the height of Yugoslav excellence, right? The 60s, uh, you know, great universities, great Olympic athletes, you know, stability, they were, Industrially, the Yugoslavs were like producing their own indigenously manufactured hardware, like computers, their their own um, small scale submarines. They like they had an air force. It was Don't pretty impressive. The AKs. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there's the Stavas, and yeah, their small arms industry was incredible. Yugo car, Yugo car. <laughs> yeah, they were they were doing really they were doing really great things, but nonetheless, during all of that time, during the time of stability and the good times, one has to imagine that there was like a Croat kid uh, or a Serb kid or a uh, Albanian kid whose father or grandfather were telling them about the glories and the grandeur of various nationalist movements during World War II. So whether you're a Chetnik or, uh, you know, uh, one of the other various nationalist militias, like the Albanians had like a fascist aligned militia, uh, and, you know, they were probably telling them about the history and the grandeur of the nation before it was under the yoke of socialist Yugoslavia. And so, you know, those ideas existed. By the time we get into the 1980s, there were some big incidents. In 1987, an ethnic Albanian fellow uh, who, was, who was part of the JNA, the Yugoslav People's Army, and we'll probably speak about them a lot in this conversation, um, he was disaffected uh, and had some other like interesting biographical issues, but he ended up, he, he got into a serious argument with a comrade who was an ethnic Serb and he ended up shooting up the barracks and he killed like four guys and five others. 
interestingly, like, I think three of them were Muslim Bosniaks, and, and the shooter was also a Muslim. So, like, at the time, everyone tried to paint it as, like, Albanian on Serb crime, but, like, only one of the victims was Serb, and I think he was actually half Slavian. But these things really kicked up the paranoia in the country. Sounds fascist. So we'll, we'll get back into we'll get back into Bosnia a little bit more, but I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about Italy now that Jack's here. And so during World War II, um, a lot of people don't realize this, but the whole thing with Italy is that they wanted colonies, and they wanted to set up in colonies. And Yugoslavia was a big part of that, and a lot of you know they I think they were principally interested in Albania. So well, they, 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 they ended up making King Zog capitulate and they captured LP mm -hmm. without a shot. So, so, so that's the thing is, is that people don't realize that World War Two, like they, they you see it as like the big picture when it's finally like the big nations against the big nations, but not the lead up where a lot of it was all these Balkan land grabs where they were arguing over territory and France is making deals with these people, Russia's making deals with these people. And it kind of happened in both wars. So. It's Italian fascism is arguably born out of the capture of Trieste, Trieste right? Uh, D'Annunzio. It's like the Italian Fry Corps, essentially, captured the town of Trieste, right? Uh, and held it, and both the Italian government as well as the Yugoslav government and various allied powers were like, hey, you guys got to decamp from this place. Like, this is unsanctioned. Um, and that was really inspirational, I think, for early Italian fascists. And yeah, it started in the Balkans. Well, it's very interesting because, like, it, we, we did a, a bit of a deep dive just between us and we'll seeing the, we played the a game where it's like how long how it clicks. was like seven degrees of kevin bacon <laughs> but fascist parties with the prime minister of italy right now like we'll we'll just um we'll basically just running through the wikipedia page right now here's mussolini's party and this is literally what i did right so uh succeeded by the republican fascist party which i think was mussolini's party directly then it was the Italian social movement. Then it's um, the national allegiance. And then, no, it's split. That's right. It's split. So, no, brother, into... <laughs> yeah, right. People of freedom. Hold on. Look up, oh, brothers of Italy. Oh, shit. There it is. Oh, look, there's the same fucking tricolor flame that the fascists use. Now, I don't know about you. But despite her policies and how she actually operates, uh, where it's yet to be seen, the fact that she's four degrees away from the actual National Fascist Party is a pretty big red flag. <laughs> Forza Italia is also there as a split from the third degree of separation. So not only was the previous uh, Prime Minister, or President, whatever the fuck it is, um, a split from the Fascist Party, but so is the current one. Although, I don't remember exactly how I got there, but I went from the Russian Imperial Movement to the coalition they had of mm. all Golden Dawn, and then there was like a the Spanish one had a bull. I don't remember. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Golden, Forza Golden Nueva. Forza, I went from like Forza, Forza and all Nueva. the... Yep. I went, I, uh, they were actually in a coalition in Europe. They had like... And they never got anywhere with it, but there was a fascist well, coalition it, in the interesting, EU. At one point, up until just three years ago, there were multiple fascists serving as members of European Parliament, 
for God's sake, including mm-hmm. non-members, which must. I mean, really I would say oh, there's a few still. <laughs> You're probably right about that. Yeah, but I mean, openly fascist guys who are giving the goddamn, uh, you know, the Roman salute and had been like seen at crazy rallies in Athens and Thessaloniki. I think I found it. So, was uh, was it this? Yes. Yeah. So I got there so, from there. Yeah. I don't so remember it was exactly the how I did it though. Freedom. And then it was, you most likely went to this. I love how these parties and then some of the most innocuous things. The Alliance yeah. for Peace and Freedom. Holy shit. So, this is the Neo-Fascist Party uh, New Force. And then, oh look, from 2003 to 2006, the leader was Alessandra Mussolini. <laughs> oh shit, and uh, guess what's there? The Tricolor Flame. Oh! Uh-huh. Oh shit! And is she oh. a direct descendant of Bertoli? <laughs> it, literally a direct descendant. <laughs> the granddaughter of Mussolini. All right. So all right. she. Okay. Here we go. Former actress and model who served as a member of the EU Parliament for Forza Italia. <laughs> it's just so insane to me how much power these people had. Just I don't. I don't think I would love for somebody who's a, who, who is an expert to come correct me on this. I don't think NATO was really aggressive about. So we denazified Western Germany, except well, we don't care about Nazis. Come those on, technical skills that we could bring over to the United States. Yeah, correct. Uh, but I don't think there was any defascification process in Italy, or I'm at least not aware of one. So um, wasn't one anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. Germany, Germany denazified themselves. All right. Let's be honest about it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I, I think I think a lot of Germans recognized what happened. I mean, it, it, it's the thing. That's what people always get into this thing where it's like, who is worse, Hitler or Stalin? It's like Stalin and Mao may have killed Stalin. more people, but if Hitler had enough time, he would have caught up. <laughs> Trust me. We know how he came to power, and it's not a traditional way. Like, you know, Mussolini was respected when he came to power. Um, Lenin was extremely respected when he formed the Soviet Union. Uh, not really the same. <laughs> so with, with well, Hitler, they kind of stole it. I don't think he was respected, though. I think he just that's what I'm saying. On, is I that's why they denazified, on... though? Yeah. It's because they yeah, weren't respected. Yeah, yeah. They didn't really respect Hitler. Everyone recognized what was going on. Mm. And your everyday um, soldier is just a soldier. You know, they're yeah. not killing Jews. The data is probably not available, but like, go encourage a PhD to write their doctoral dissertation on like. Hitler's actually more popular in contemporary Europe than he was in the 1940s. I <laughs> bet. I bet. I bet. I bet he probably Dude, is. I guarantee you that's true. I'll, yeah. Yes. I think it's like actually a point of very, very large national shame in Germany. So I don't actually think that they um they would have that much support there. Oh, uh, uh, dude, they 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 they, desp- they despise it. Like you're lucky if you'll get them to joke about it when they're drunk. Like they they it's re- yeah. You're right about that, Jack. It is a huge point of national shame for them. No, no understandably, Jesus Christ, yes, yeah. Um, well, I think shame-based cultures are kind of good. On the same continent, in the same proximity, to the same death camp, it is happening again. Genocide. That's what it is. We're told we're not taking sides. I'm here to take sides. Milotic is a war criminal. He is no better than Himmler. He is no better than Goebbels. 
He is a war criminal. Karadzic is a war criminal. And I might add, the leader of Serbia, Milosevic, is also a war criminal. Although he's the only one not indicted so far. Soviet empire has collapsed. The good news. The bad news is, all the atrocities are now uncovered again. And what's so important about the Western alliance? NATO for NATO's sake, so we can beat our breast? What I'm about to say is going to cause me great difficulty if I'm re-elected and come back here as the ranking member or chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. Europe cannot stay united without the United States. There is no moral center in Europe. When in the last two centuries have the French or the British or the Germans or the Belgians or the Italians moved in a way to unify that continent? When have they done it? Tell me why we don't have a moral interest. Walk with me through Sarajevo streets and see draped across the roads, blankets and sheets. You know why they're there? To take off the line of fire from Serbian snipers shooting children. We pretended it didn't happen. Ask Bob Dole. We stood beside a beautiful raven-haired child. And the neurosurgeon said, the reason she's not turning is she has no sight. He turned her head. The bullet had gone through the back of her head, severed the optic nerves, and came out the other side. There were seven children in that hospital. Nobody else. So let me tell you, if your moral center is oil, I understand you. If your moral center is humanity, there is no comparing the restoration of the emir of Kuwait with the ending of genocide in Bosnia. It's not really the system. It's the individual, right? Yes. So that's, and that's the thing with, um, with the Balkans, right? Is that it doesn't, it's not like there's going to be one government system that's going to save these countries and get them to stop fighting, but you have, well, there, there might be in the form of Tito. I don't know. That's what I was going to, it's just what I was going to say. It's kind of like a, just a really dumb, I guess you could say like, I don't know if it's a Western American or European mentality that they think they can break up like countries like Lebanon or, or Bosnia and these like. Okay, so the 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 president is going to be Serb, or the prime minister is going to be a Christian. And, Lebanon is a know, perfect example because literally the law yeah, says no. that this wing is Shia, yeah, this no, wing no, is. No. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's the same thing with modern day Iraq. They're like, no, the, the the head of the military has to be like a Sunni Muslim. It's like, dude, it, it's not going to work like that. Are, are you guys talking about the French? Yes, yes the French I was mandate. talking about the French mandate. So, so the West, look, 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 marching into the Bosnian War, which was 1992 to 1995, the Clinton administration, like, probably at one point wished it had the heavy hand of the French mandate to say, we're just going to split you assholes into these three administrative groups because we don't actually understand your country and this is a headache for us. And you can see this in their policy and post-Soviet and marching in to all of these new late 20th century early 21st century crises we like we had like plans that were very similar to the colonial powers that were just like well we don't understand why you tribes are all warring against one another for all we know you've been doing that for centuries so let's just split the bloody buggers up and call it good night and that well, was like that was it, it, no it's interesting it's interesting you bring that up it's interesting you bring that up because Clinton had been heavily influenced by like a by like an author at the time. The book is, is and, Robert Kaplan's Balkan Ghosts. That's it ex exactly. And he told him he was like he was like well no like at the early part of the Yugoslav War in like 1991-92 he basically told all oh, these groups have been hating each other forever. You can't really do anything about it, Billy boy. They've hated each other since the beginning of time and shit. And that's why they weren't involved as early on until later. Like, until, like, once we got in 1995, 96, 97, 98, 
you know, 1991 to 92, Clinton was like, oh, yeah, you're right, Mr. Author of the Balkan Goat. The ancient hatreds argument was so goddamn detrimental to the entire U.S. approach to Bosnia pre-1995. And you're right, Robert Kaplan, like, still, I mean, Robert Kaplan is famous for this essay that came a book called The Coming Anarchy. Robert Kaplan believes that... Um, and his forecasting is pretty good, but sometimes it's really fucked up. Robert Kaplan is a Stratfor guy. Stratfor is a, uh, <laughs> a think tank uh, based in Austin, Texas, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Like anybody who fears the intelligence services and is like, oh, these guys glow. They, they have zeroed in on Stratfor. And Robert Kaplan's entire thing was that like all of these institutions and all this stuff is going to break down. Like, for instance, Sub-Saharan Africa is going to be – is like going to – is going to be foisted back into Con Joseph Conrad's like uh, tribal chaos, but it's going to be with AK-47s and RPGs. And the only bit of uh, Africa that the Western world or the trading world, the Chinese, the Russians are going to be able to access are these port cities that are protected by highly militarized security forces that basically cut these important trade lanes off from the violent interior of Africa. So this is the guy whose book like informed Warren Christopher and Bill Clinton. And yeah, you're right. So like the ancient hatreds idea is this is like, oh, these old boys have been fighting each other forever and there's very little we can do by stepping in. So the Clinton administration had to take like incident increment by increment. And it's like, well, there was a new massacre, sir. You'd get, you'd get the presidential daily briefing in the morning, you know, in 1993, 1994. You'd be like, well, hey man, Republic of Serbska, Serb forces just massacred some new dudes and they also ambushed a, a UN convoy and he would like ratchet up the sanctions a little bit. Or, I mean, that's just, know, that's just US policy, man. I think that the Clinton administration was largely leaning, okay, this is interesting, and I'm not trying to exonerate the Clinton administration. I am not a fan. I'm not. I'm actually not a fan of any U.S. administration that I've lived in uh, in my entire life. I was born in 1988. Can't say that I fucking liked any of them. They all kind of suck in their own, in their own way, and some ways that are very common between all of them. That's because uh, politicians suck in general. Thank you, sir. I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but the Clinton administration, to just add a degree of nuance to what was going on. Okay, so uh, they, were, they were dealing... Uh, okay, a couple of things were happening. Bosnia was getting bad, and it had gotten bad before... The official start of the Bosnian War, most people agree on the date of April 6, 1992. The reason is that, that is when the European Economic Community and the United States, so Brussels and Washington, D.C., respectively, recognize the sovereign claims of Bosnia as a state without having a framework. But everyone knew things were going to shit. So the Clinton administration had a few things going on. One, they kind of didn't want to bother with it. They were really dealing with the collapse of the USSR and trying to restructure various Warsaw Pact nations uh principally czechoslovakia uh hungary uh romania bulgaria these countries uh they were they were they knew that these countries were in play and that warsaw was a, a, a very weak alliance and that they would have a lot of inroads here so they focused on that yugoslavia caught them off guard i feel like and so a couple of things going into the fall of yugoslavia not only did they not really want to deal with it 
but once things started getting very ugly, uh, and, 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 and to fast forward, the Clinton administration had also been playing around with the idea of a direct military intervention, but the UN Security Council had said, essentially, we got this. Don't worry about this. We're going to send in a multinational force. Um, and then there were some embarrassments for it. A, a, a mixed force of Danish, Norwegian, and Sweden, Swedish troops had come under ambush several times, both from Bosniak Muslim forces, as well as from Herzog, Croat forces, and uh, Republika Srpska forces. They were getting shot up and they weren't doing very well. The great embarrassment was Srebrenica. And everybody knows about this. I think the official count, according to the UN, is 7,079 boy and adult male, uh, juvenile and adult male Bosniaks were executed and dumped into 14 plus mass graves in a small village that had swelled to the number of 60,000 Muslim refugees by. 1995 by July 1995 and the entire the entire village was supposed to be protected by a Danish led UN security force the flag was flying there and they basically in a greater blitz to take out four similar locations and then complete the siege of the capital Sarajevo before winter 1995 the forces of Ramzan Karadzic uh, came in and massacred damn near 8,000 people, closer to 7,000 people, I think, or is the official count. That was a bit too much for the United States, and it coincided with the Rwandan genocide on which we had not acted and which was a huge embarrassment for the Clinton administration. And so there was a ton of pressure. Uh, and prior to that, there was already a no-fly zone that was being for enforced by NATO aircraft, but NATO aircraft wasn't providing any air support to UN protection forces on the ground. And was this before or after the F one seventeen propaganda posters? <clears throat> Can you give me a rundown on, on those? Oh, have you not seen them? Uh, if I, uh, I this is the war before that one. Oh, it's the, it's the one before. So this is this is the the poster I was talking about. Because they shot down the F-117. I wasn't sure whether it was this one or the Kosovo one. It says, sorry, we didn't know it was invisible with a picture you of the You can zoom in a little. So. <laughs> no, it won't, it won't zoom in at all. No, it won't? No. So, that's, how did that conflict come to an end and uh, the next the, one start? At the end of this entire thing, the United States, once we finally decided to step in, we began an air campaign against RS forces, Republika Srpska forces, um, post-Srebrenica uh, massacre. We brought the three principles to fucking Dayton, Ohio, the middle of nowhere, the middle of nowhere, right? And there's a huge air base and all that. But, like, you bring all these guys to Dayton, Ohio, and there were days and days of, of negotiations between the Croat leader, Franjo Tujman's people, Franjo Tujman's people, the, the, the Bosniak leader, uh, Alia Izetbegovic, and what everyone calls the butcher of the Balkans, Serb leader or Yugoslav leader, Slavodan Milosevic. And the, the rumor is that at one point, U.S. Uh, diplomat Richard Holbrook grabbed Milosevic by the lapels of his coat and said, you son of a bitch, you will accept this goddamn peace deal and you will cut the shit 
and you'll rein in your boys in Bosnia, or we'll fuck things up. And that seems pretty realistic to me. <laughs> so I I don't know much about the these conflicts, but why why did NATO go in and um is it still sort of a sore topic for um I guess the people that would have been in former Yugoslavia? It's not only sore for them, but depending on what part of Yugoslavia you're in, so like the various stabilization missions, it broke into seven countries eventually. The interesting one is Kosovo. Kosovo and Vojvodina, they were autonomous provinces of the Socialist Republic of Serbia. Kosovo is 90% ethnic Albanian. Uh, and they're an interesting people in the Balkans. They're an ancient people who came up along the Adriatic coast and they have a unique language. It's a unique language group, a unique script, and they're not a Slavic people. And they are Sunni Muslim following the conquest of the region by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, um, Is that why everyone in the area hates them? them? No, well... It might have a great deal to do with it, yes. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're probably right, but I would imagine that there were probably strife between communities prior to uh, Ottoman presence in the region, though on that I cannot speak. But thing got bad. things had been getting bad, actually, before Bosnia even kicked off. In the 1980s, things were getting rather bad in Kosovo. Kosovo kind of rightly realized that, A, because of its ethnic makeup, and B, because of its geographical contiguity, uh, along along the border of the motherland, Albania proper, which was not a part of Yugoslavia. It was his own country led by another interesting communist who was not part of Warsaw or Yugoslavia named Enver Hoxha. And Enver Hoxha was like this paranoid communist nationalist leader of Albania. And his government fell to shit as well after he passed away. And Albanians that is, citizens of the country of Albania, as well as ethnic Albanians, began raiding arms stocks in the country. And they got a fuck ton of small arms and light weapons. Uh, Zastava's clash. Storm the Bastille! That's right, they did. They did that, exactly. And then weapons poured over into the Uchika, or the Kosovo Liberation Army, the KLA, who began attacking... Uh, serve police stations and army checkpoints and shit like that. Um, leading into the entire thing, Slobodan Milosevic traveled into northern Kosovo, and this was a turning point. This was a turning point in all of the Yugoslav wars. Ethnic Serbs were complaining that Kosovar, which Kosovar means ethnic Albanian member of the country of Kosovo, Kosovar police officers were being abusive and heavy-handed towards ethnic Serbs. So Slobodan Milosevic shows up at the summit. He thinks he's going to, uh, you know, be able to tamp things down, deal with issues in the rest of a collapsing country. It turns out he gets drawn out in front of this huge fucking crowd, all this press, and he makes this, he makes this speech. And they say, because of our police have been abusing us and doing this and that. And he says, no one will beat you. No one ever again will beat you. Well, he didn't know how badly he had fucked up because the entire ethnic Serb population of Kosovo took that to mean, oh yeah, the JNA has our back and we can fucking get busy. And they did. And I'm glad so you brought up the arm because I, I, I want to get into the arms. And this is a huge reason that the U.S. got involved in Bosnia later on is because the, the, um, uh, the Serbian army had inherited a shitload of weapons 
from the Yugoslav era kind of like standing army that was around. Whereas the, the Muslim, yeah, whereas the Muslim Bosniaks didn't didn't have much really, really going for them as far as the arms were concerned. They had support from Pakistan and a couple other countries and f- foreign fighters who came. And in. there was a, there was a UN but, there was a UN arms embargo put upon uh, put upon Bosnia, so no one could transfer arms to any side fighting, which really hobbled the Bosnians. And the other the other thing, since since those bunkers were raided um, in in um, uh, in communist Albania at the time, uh, that kind of really gave what we now call like the kind of infamous Albanian mafia, like room to flourish because they finally had the arms and vehicles to transport like drugs and arms and traffic people like in throughout the late nineties to early two thousands and really get their, I guess you could say business for lack of a better term up and running. But yeah, I just wanted to touch on that a little bit. There's a really cool, um, like, I'm not a huge fan of the Ivies and all of that, and their faculty are totally fucked in the head, but there's a great fucking uh, Serb professor of sociology that I worked with at Harvard named Danilo Mandic, and he's written extensively about smuggling routes of weapons into Kosovo, to the Ujica, to the KLA, uh, and how they all use mules, because, you know, it's a very mountainous geography and all of that, and... Uh, the gun running, yeah, to get the KLA up and running, it never, of course, reached parity with the JNA. It required uh, NATO at one point uh, began a 97-day air campaign against Belgrade. So the air campaign against Bosnia, we were attacking Republika Srpska or Bosnian Serb troops in Bosnia led by uh, Radovan Karadzic, uh, excuse me, Mlatko Radzic, excuse me, um, uh, Kosovo was interesting. This is happening in 98-99. You know, fighting had kicked off again three years after the Dayton Accords and after Bosnia had concluded. And it was getting so bad in Kosovo that at that time, at the twilight of its administration, uh, the Clinton admin said, we're not going to let this happen again. We had Rwanda happen. We had fucking Srebrenica and Gorazda and all, uh, you know, Tuzla and all these other awful massacres in Bosnia. Fuck this. We're not going to let this happen. So they just started bombing the capital of Serbia, which was at that point, Yugoslavia had been reduced to just Serbia, now breakaway Kosovo, and Montenegro, which left in 2006 under a peaceful referendum. But uh, we bombed Belgrade, and we bombed it so goddamn hard that we, like, the Ministry of Defense, if you walk through modern-day Belgrade, it's still like partially in ruins. Your Serb tour guide loves to show you this. It's like, look what you assholes did. We bombed a Chinese state television station and other things. One Orange of the idiot. best hospitals in the in the country was also destroyed too. I forget its name, but a lot of people had to, like, for example, if, right. they, if, if, if they were expecting, because they were very good with like uh, delivering babies, essentially, if they were expecting, they would actually go to Bulgaria or Macedonia or, or Slovenia, like within like they were seven months pregnant and they would chill there for like two to three months and have a baby there because the hospital in Belgrade was fucked. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. the other, the so other that... thing I, I wanted to get into was kind of, sorry to cut you off there, but this is going to be quick, uh, is kind of how the KLA and UCK or Uchika, how, how, is that how they say it? Uchika? The one in Kosovo? Yes, sir. Yeah. I just uh, call kind them the KLA, of, kind yeah. of, yeah, yeah, kind of uh, expanded expanded into um, other places because the thing you need to understand about um, uh, kind of like 
Albanian nationalist uh, sentiment and ideology is they believe in a thing called Greater Albania, which is basically all of Albania, Kosovo, and parts of northwestern, what is now called North Macedonia, Macedonia. not the Greek Macedonia. Macedonia. And so yeah, in 2001, in 2001, they moved into uh, they they moved into Macedonia. And this is kind of like the lesser and known one because the war lasted about six to eight started months. Insurgency. Started insurgency. Started insurgency. Really and there were there up. were there were a lot of there were a lot of incidents of Macedo- ethnic Macedonian, ethnic Slavic Macedonian police officers getting killed, and uh, kind of due to this the kind of pushback from the Macedonian Slavic population of uh, an army and police of massacring like Albanian Macedonian villages in places like Gostivar, Debar, Struga, Tetovo, Kumanovo, like you said. This war was minor, but it only lasted because it only lasted like six to eight months. After, and then the Ohrid agreement came along. It got, it got so gnarly that before Ohrid, what, the KLA after... After it trickled down from Kosovo, it became the NLA, the National Liberation yeah. Army of yeah. Macedonia. And, they got they and, got and so it, close that from Aracinovo, they were lobbing eighty-two millimeter mortar rounds onto like the fucking tarmac yep. of Skopje Airport. I think. Yep, yep. That that all happened, and they they actually <laughs> to this day there are former members of the KLA in um, North Macedonian Parliament because they were like, well, if you guys aren't going to let us take these these northwestern and northern areas of 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 macedonia well you might as well kind of give us our say in parliament and they actually do hold quite a bit of sway in modern day macedonian politics and the modern day macedonian parliament especially recently um, uh, i think it was around mm-hmm. 2016 or 2017 that the vmro this is the most obnoxious party name ever the the okay it's, it's called the uh they originally started out as a guerrilla group and it's the I, the I-M-R-O-V-M-R-E or something like that. The Slavic Nationalist Party in Macedonia was defeated by a progressive party in, in coalition with the Albanian ethnic party around 2016. I actually was there in 2018 and like, dude, they, they fucking hated him. Like the Slavic Macedonians <laughs> despised this guy. Not just because they thought he was giving too much of a leash to the Albanians, but just because, like, you know, just kind of like the progressive economic policies weren't working out. They felt like he was giving into Greece because at the time they just signed the agreement to uh, to eventually change the name from, uh, what is it, the former Yugoslav Republic? It was called of, Fyrum, uh, the former Yugoslav yeah, Republic of Macedonia. Macedonia to, like, Northern Macedonia, which is what it's called now. They just signed the agreement to get that done. That was between the eventually. Greeks and the and, Macedonians called the Prespa Agreement. Yeah, and, oh, yeah, my and, God. And, the, and, the, and the I, I, I got to see some... I saw people, like, skinheads rioting in the streets of Skopje. It was, it was interesting. <laughs> but... Um, and what is it called? It's called the I-M-R-O-V-P-M-N-E or something like that. And it's like the International Revolutionary Macedonian or something. They go back to a, a literal mountain bandit movement that was fighting in the mountains in the first Balkan nice. Wars of the 1910s. And then they became a party coup militia and then an established party, right? And yeah, they got ousted when you were there. And you were saying you were seeing the backlash against... Zoran Zayev. Yeah, just huge, huge backlash. People, people coming into like the city center, and you know, you just saw like huge police armored vehicles and whatnot. And at that point, I was like, okay, it's cafe time because I'm not trying to be out here for this shit. And I would just yep. observe from like a balcony somewhere. 
And um, yeah, man, it's it, it's really interesting to see because it's like people very much underestimate like the the reach that um uh, I guess you could say ethnic Albanians have in the Balkans. There's even parts of Greece that they claim is like that's us, that's ours. Like the Albanian uh, nationalists just, tell you this. That, no, that's, it's that's right. Yes, Epirus. Um, you go up to northwestern Greece on the border of Albania, and you'll see. Uh, it's called Epirus, and both the Albanians claim this region over the Greek border, and the Greeks claim the region over the Albanian border. In fact, uh, Mitsotakis, the current uh, Greek prime minister, just went and visited a bunch of Al uh, Greek Albanian fucking villages on the other side of the border. You'll see like uh, Greek uh, 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 graffiti that says "Exo Turcos," which means "Get the fuck out, uh, Turks," but like. You know the Greeks call anybody who is a Muslim. It doesn't matter. Yeah, everyone, everyone's era. a Turk. Yeah. You're a Turk. You're a fucking Turk. Yeah. There, there's this Albanian neighborhood in uh, Macedonia called Chire, and I would go there because they have fucking fantastic pastries. It's a, it's a little bit of a shit show. I'm not gonna lie to you. When you when you go there, you feel like you're in a completely different country. Um, you if you go there like early in the morning to like about the afternoon, there are no women walking around in the streets. Like none. They don't come out until like around nighttime when it's like when like the families are out and stuff. And yeah, it's it's actually insane. Like you would see graffiti, like pro pro like Uchika and KLA stuff. You would see like Skanderberg. They have a huge like Skanderberg graffiti wall right outside the neighborhood. <laughs> and, you know, stuff stuff in Albania, the English that says China is not Macedonia, independent Republic of China. Like and they're a neighborhood, bro. They're not like a separate city. They're a neighborhood within Skopje. It's it's an interesting way to look at it. The KLA and the uh, Albanian mafia are very much interconnected, and uh, they they do a lot of business dealings together, a lot of arms trafficking dealings, a lot of money, if drug you, money is split. If you don't mind me saying, the, the KLA trafficking too. The, the they do KLA, human, they do everything, bro. They will traffic the, anything and everything. That's true, but the, the KLA the KLA either former structure former structures of it are are. <sighs> Deeply, deeply embedded within the current parliament in Pristina, actually. I mean, it's just, that's true. It's like, exactly. You know, right? When are we going to get to the license I, plates in, in Kosovo? Okay. All right. So really <laughs> yeah. quickly, let me, let me, let me introduce this. If you guys don't mind. So this is so seemingly stupid and it just speaks to Balkan shit, but okay. All right. So we've already laid out Kosovo broke away from Serbia. Kosovo is historically important to Serbia because of a goddamn battle that went back to 1389. And this is the Balkans for you. Like, people will spray paint this shit on buildings and bring this up in conversations at bars. Some battle that is that is 300 years older than my country. They will bring this up, you know, as, as their justification for why things happened in recent memory. 1389... The, Serb, the kingdom of Serbia was one of the last holdouts against the Ottomans, and Prince Lazar II fought and died in a battle against, I think, Osman or somebody. They both died. But they, Kosovo was lost, and Kosovo Polja, I have been told, means the field of crows, because the crows feasted upon the bodies. Well, geographically, it's incredibly lush and very verdant, real farmland. Real quick. Real quick. Yeah. Uh, there was there was a there was a psychologist who I believe worked for like the ICC. She has a she has a book called My War Criminal where she she basically details all of her interviews with her. Her name is Jessica. Karzic. 
Her name is Jessica and Stern. He, her name is Jessica yeah, Stern. Yeah, Jessica Stern. That's Jessica right. Stern. And she has a, a, a big thing to his identity is apparently in the book, he says to her several times, and apparently this is true, he has a claim to being like a direct descendant of King Laza. He, That's he, probably bullshit. Like a, yeah, Jessica Stern is a professor of terrorism at the JFK School of Harvard who's being borrowed by Boston University. And I am a student of Jessica Stern. Um but yeah, his claim is probably nonsense. It might be correct. Who knows? It's a small. But it, but you, the thing you got to understand, but, nonsense or not, it, it it very much shapes like the way he saw. People should read her books. My my work. Yeah, no, they should. People should. They people should. should. He, it very it very much shapes shapes the way he views himself in like the Serb like struggle. Yeah, and like, Stern claim. also got probably the most comprehensive like interview out of that guy than anybody else has, and he trusted her for a lot of reasons. So. Yeah, go read Jessica Stern's book, My War Criminal. Your spot, and I'm sorry for interrupting you so many times. I'm a so we both were interrupting each other, so. <laughs> this is just how. Yeah, I, I want to bring this up. People will see this in the news, and it's going to continue to be a problem. And it's 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 very characteristic of the Balkans, where like a seemingly small, innocuous issues vehicle license plate registries will like. Uh, turn into a Casas belly, for Christ's sake. Uh, okay, so, 90% of Kosovo as it exists now, it was one of those semi-autonomous provinces. It was not a federal republic of Yugoslavia. It was an autonomous province. It broke apart. Uh, in, well, it didn't break apart. 98, 99, there was a lot of violence. Uchika, the JNA, or whatever existed, the remnant of it, the remnant Yugoslav state, U.S. NATO got involved really fucking quickly, and uh, something like a parastate was was created. 2008, Kosovo declares its independence. 117 countries have eventually acknowledged its independence. Interesting countries and important countries and NATO member countries, such as Spain, for instance, have not recognized, and Greece have not recognized Kosovo's that, independence. That makes total sense um, why Spain wouldn't, though. Yeah, for a variety of reasons, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fast forward to today. Kosovo has been separated, and it has the hand of NATO in it. There, there, are, there are about 3,000 NATO troops in Kosovo. Serbia, under Aleksandr Vucic, would love nothing better than to forcefully go in and at least take a part of the province back. A part of it, create a buffer zone, create a, quote, safe zone for ethnic Serbs as they see it. This big dispute that's going on right now, which has been in the news in the last three weeks, Reuters, BBC, etc., the government in Pristina, which is the capital of Kosovo, has said, ethnic Serbs, we've been letting you guys drive in and out of the country using the vehicle registrations and the license plates from Serbia. Well, you're not in Serbia anymore. You're in Kosovo. So you get on with the goddamn program and you accept like basic bureaucratic measures such as vehicle registrations from Pristina, or you get the fuck out and you lose your license. Uh, and I'm not backing up the Pristina government by saying this. I'm being very animated. So ethnic Serbs have said, fuck you. We don't actually accept that we are in Kosovo. We don't think Kosovo is a country. Um, since the war in Kosovo, which ended in 99, 98 to 99 is when it lasted, uh, the country's basically been consolidated into the northern section is, you know, 10% that 10% of the country, it's all Serbs. The bottom 90% is 
is ethnic Albanians, and they share a border with the country of Albania as well. Ace brought up the project of Greater Albania, and we're really getting into what a fucking powder keg the Balkans are, and they always have been, especially the Western Balkans. But the vehicle registration issue like almost turned into armed conflict between the two sides. And most recently, a few weeks ago, again, related to this like seemingly banal bureaucratic dispute, ethnic Kosovo Serbs set up roadblocks uh, and there were some armed exchanges between them and ethnic Albanian Kosovar police forces. It looked like it was going to get really bad. Alexander Vucic, president of Serbia, put forces on high alert, sent a five-star general down into Kosovo, or right next to the border with Kosovo, and there was a lot of posturing, and that's really characterized the bilateral relationship between the two countries in the last 15 years, for sure. Uh, at the end of the day, Brussels and Washington stepped in and said, hey, there's going to be a lot of consequences, uh, and we're not going to let this happen right now. That's a very ignorant characterization. Again, not knowing the nuances of uh, diplomatic fuckery. Who knows what actually happened? But for now, the conflict has not been resolved. It's been kicked down the road. And it is highly likely, in my estimate, that we see another armed conflict in Kosovo, in the coming years, and furthermore, in Bosnia, because the central Bosnian That's authority... very interesting, because I hear the opposite from a lot of analysts. A lot of analysts have assured me that it's not going to kick off in Kosovo. It's not going to happen. But they said that look, about man, Ukraine, so... Look, man, fucking Russia broke the 21st century taboo on war in Europe. It's going down now. I I seriously, and, and I will put on the clown wig and the nose and the paint in five years if... Turkey doesn't at least try to take a stab at the Aegean Islands in Greece. Failed uh, on the diplomatic level to build up a really serious security alliance. They failed on that. Like, they're relying on the Israelis. Who are like, and France. Running. Yeah, it's fucked. Yeah, they're not going to, they are not going to fare well. Greece will be dramatically reduced um, in terms of its Aegean territory. I imagine. That's not one they can win. We're about to see some shit, fellows, and if I'm wrong, again, I'll put on the clown wig, the nose, the paint, all the shit, but I would not be surprised if we saw renewed fighting in Bosnia more immediately than we do in Kosovo and Serbia. Kosovo and Serbia is kind of... Real, real, real quick, real quick about Bosnia, though. The thing that I've heard from analysts right um is that the, the thing with republika serbska and bosnia broadly speaking is that the the population living in the areas of republika serbska it's like first off you're talking about a population that is quite rural and the other thing too about bosnia is while there are a lot of young people yes a very large portion of them are outside the country so who's who's gonna fight this war exactly and and how is Republika Srpska going to get this backing from Serbia when it's like Serbia is kind of looking at it as why would we want to inherit like more rural land filled with old people, essentially? Like what what what, what will be your counter argument to that if there is any? The motivation is the more interesting question. And there you're right. There's a hole in like Milo Dodik's like fucking campaign to reconstitute RS and however he sees it. 
in terms of uh, flight of youth and brain drain in both Kosovo and Bosnia, something to be worried about is that in such countries where there are so few job opportunities and uh, so few subsidies for education, one of the only guaranteed paychecks a young man can get in such a country is with the military or the militarized police. So uh, I think that's an issue. Now, personally, my experience in Republika Srpska, in Banja Luka, or in more far-flung places where you would expect there to be extremism, my generation, the millennials, and the generation behind them, Gen Z, have absolutely zero interest in renewed ethnic violence. The fucked up thing is it's like a bunch of old men. It's like a bunch of fucking older generations who are the radicals. I mean, Milorad Dodik and these guys, I don't think they speak for the young generation at all. I think the young generation is like, I'm pissed off at the fact that our currency has such little purchasing value and there are yeah. few fucking They, they have like real problems. And that's what I was saying earlier with Italy and that it's like those, those er, the era of empires for the, um, the last generations, like we don't see that anymore. I say this all the time. When has a war of domination worked out? When was the last time that worked out? It just doesn't happen anymore, you know? And so there's these people that want to go back to this, uh, Austria, Hungary, you know, fire and maneuver type, type of warfare with Napoleon and these great empires. You know, and that just doesn't exist. And I think that the young people there must, you know, they just don't have that. They weren't, because they weren't, because the, the, you know, you have to think about their parents or their grandparents were in these places that were great empires. And they talk about how great it was, like, when this or that. And they have, you know, I think they have more motivation for fascist tendencies than uh, the West. But also, like I said, I don't think fascism really matters in this case. So the opening question where I said, what's the most fascist country here? I don't think it really matters. You know, at the end of the day, because, you know, who knows? A fascist country could end up being on, a, on the good side of something. You know, it's a it's a wild card over there.